Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Carly Ostrom is in her 20s, and for most of her life, she felt like she had a good sense of who she was. Farm kid, big sister. She was athletic and a star student. Gifted and talented. Going to NYU someday. Warm person, dancer, art kid, playlist maker. Calculus lover, Wharton student, standout intern, world traveler, cool girl, coder, designer, team leader. But then she got hit by a car while crossing a busy street. She suffered a severe traumatic brain injury that shattered her life. Everything she thought she knew about herself, about who she was, it all changed. Her personality, her behavior, her interests. Traumatically brain injured. Survivor, hallucinating, non-person, disabled, insomniac, inhibitionless, childlike, dits, silly, empath, anxious, free spirit, psychedelic tripper, steadfast, going to be okay. The path to recovery was really hard, and it forced her to take a deep look at who she was and how she had gotten there. Why had she chosen to be a dancer or attend an Ivy League school? Were those her decisions, or did other people steer her toward those choices? In the absence of all of those automatic things and skills and beliefs that I had about myself, I realized the extent to which they were all built up just for validation, approval, and connection with other people. None of us exist in a vacuum. We're shaped by the people around us, by the societies we live in. Social psychologist Brian Lowry tackles this idea in his new book, Selfless, The Social Construction of You. I think about the self or the way we experience the self as a social construct, meaning that it's a function of our relationships. It's a function of the interactions we have. It's a function of the collective interactions we have that we think of as culture. Think about the things we say about ourselves and who we are. I might tell you that I'm a mother, a daughter, a sister, a journalist. Brian says all of these aspects of my identity are based on social relationships. They cannot exist without other people. And you push that to the end in what you think is, I cannot exist without other people. And so once you believe that, once you accept that, then that really changes how you think about the self and what the self is. On this episode, an exploration of the self, who we are, how we define ourselves, and how much we're defined by others. We'll talk to Brian about his new book and why he argues that our sense of self is much more dependent on other people than we might think. To 
To get started, let's stick with Carly Ostrom's story. She was just about to graduate from college when she was struck by a car and suffered a severe traumatic brain injury. Part of her skull had to be removed, and doctors had to put her in a coma to allow her brain to heal. Her long journey back included a big change in how she viewed herself and who she is. Alan Hinnich picks up the story from there. Hello. My name is Carly Ostrom. My nickname is Curl. And I'm a person in the world. Today I'm sitting in Washington Square Park in Philadelphia. I'm from Wisconsin, Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I'm 26 years old. On May 8th, 2019, Carly and her friend Yasmina were hit by a Jeep Grand Cherokee while crossing the street. Both of them suffered serious injuries, and when Carly woke up in the hospital, she had no memory of the accident. She was supposed to walk for her college graduation that month. Instead, she was dealing with a severe traumatic brain injury and an uncertain future. After the accident happened, I felt honestly like a blob. I had such high levels of fatigue, and so many of my pathways were just shattered. I was questioning absolutely everything about myself and my entire world. I guess the recovery starts when I woke up from a coma. Coming out of the coma was a slow process for Carly. She says her mind was trapped in an alternate reality of dreams and hallucinations. There was this guy that I went to a coding boot camp with, and he and I were sort of flirtatious. He's from Italy. He came to Philly to, like, ask me out. So I put on this skin-tight cat suit, and I met him at this punk bar, and, you know, things really, like, took off. What was the bar like? It was just dark. Very punk. You had to go down these stairs. The first time I started to contemplate, I was in an alternate universe, was probably at about the sixth or seventh week after my accident. I remember being in a bathroom or something and thinking like, wait, did this thing happen to me? I can't really do things. I can't walk on stairs by myself. I need help going to the bathroom. I have to wear this helmet to protect my brain, which doesn't have half its skull. And I am now, like, in Chicago, relearning how to, like, walk in a straight line and, like, type and make a bulletin list. Carly had to relearn some of the most basic functions. How to swallow, go to the bathroom, and then eventually walking. There are videos of me walking, and I have, like, three or four nurses around me, and they're kind of like, turn your feet out like a penguin. And remember, 
like a penguin don't they not too close together not too close together you're gonna you're gonna trip like a penguin Carly that was all an inpatient rehab after being in the hospital she went through 20 months of outpatient rehab she had to learn how to walk in a straight line how to move her head while keeping her eyes fixated on one point hold a bottle of water without dropping it and how to interact with others my intonation how I make eye contact with someone or use my limbs to communicate while I talk or even how I dressed. After my accident, all of those things were just wiped. I really didn't know who I was. Back in college, Carly performed in ballet and urban dance groups. She was into tech entrepreneurship, coding apps on the weekends, and she also designed a magazine. After the accident, all those interests suddenly seemed unreachable. They were from a past life. In the absence of all of those automatic things and skills and beliefs that I had about myself, I realized the extent to which they were all built up just for validation, approval, and connection with other people. You know, it was like very silly things like, wait, well, why did I become so interested in dancing? Why did I have to become this Ivy League student? Sometimes she would feel traces of her former self. I was like a working girl with a huge ego. I was like, so when am I going to be fine? When am I going to like work my job? I'm supposed to be a CEO one day, you know? I would say that to my doctors. And they would just look at me and say, like, oh, we don't know. Like, every person recovers differently after TBI. We don't know. You might need to reimagine what you think your life is going to be like. Which was so devastating. My entire life, I defined myself by success and achievements and just being a badass, I had labeled myself as those things. So when they were telling me like, oh, it's it's easy, just get a new identity. And I was so indignant. I was like, I wanna go, I miss my independence. I wanna get coffee with my friends in Center City, Philly. I wanna be living my life. This is not living. I fantasized about like moving into my my first new apartment, I fantasized about getting a French press coffee maker, you know, like my own. I didn't even really like coffee that much, but that felt like a a symbolic, a doll growing up kind of thing that I was just desperate to do. Carly tried to get back to her old life, to reconnect with her friends, but many of them had moved on with their lives. No one knows how to deal with someone with a severe traumatic brain injury, so most people just didn't keep in touch with me during this time when I was dangling. You know, once people saw me for literally just my soul left, that wasn't enough. And so that was really depressing and I was suicidal and I started doing psychedelics. Despite warnings from doctors, she tried psychedelic mushrooms. It, it has definitely been a turning point. And it was really healing because I was just there with some friends in a beautiful city I was able to actually own my experience and say, 
we, as in Carly, you and I, <laughs> you've been pretty steadfast with yourself. You haven't given up. You are going to be okay. Carly began to see a new version of herself emerging, and the plans she had made before her accident for her old self, they no longer seemed right. Since senior year, she had a job lined up at a digital media company. But once she started to work there, she realized it didn't align with her values anymore. I am just going to, like, go get high click-through rates, get a sick apartment in New York just to have that and, like, be cool. I was like, no, like, I can't live with myself like that. That's, I would be a bad person. And I, it, I, it's not like everyone in these non-service careers are bad people. It's just that they haven't been able to experience or fathom this infinite suffering. I'm not saying that I experienced infinity, but I dipped my toe in the endless sea of infinity enough to be like oh, this, is, this is not to be messed with this is a real thing Carly is now taking pre-health classes at University of Wisconsin to work in healthcare one day if I could just like help people with brain problems just like me if I could be the doctor that I never had or the mentor or the friend then that's enough. I would live for that. She also started interacting with the rest of the world in a new way. Oh, I'm a lot more curious now. And I don't want to have small talk. You should become a journalist. Yeah, I probably should, actually. <laughs> but then you probably need to, like, distill it down. And doing that with people that ramble so much. I don't know. I mean, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> she describes herself as being radically unfiltered. And that turned out to be not uh, a good approach because a lot of people were like, you're an ass. Some social norms, Carly, are here for a reason. Yeah. But I was like, no, but you see, it's all bull. You're all just trying to manipulate each other. Don't you think that's dumb? And they'd be like, no. <laughs> I I definitely overcorrected, but I don't buy into a lot of social norms. I'm not going to mold myself at all for other people. For example, not shaving any of my body hair. And I'm a hairy person. Actually, a lot of women are hairy. Despite what society seems to think, so, my mom is extremely upset about my, my long armpit hair right now. When you explore your brain, you realize, oh my God, all these things I've just been doing automatically, I didn't choose those. I just became them because other people told me to or shamed me into it. It's been kind of weird because... Unlike when you're a child, 
and don't understand how things are happening you know in terms of your development into a person with a personality and thoughts and feelings and likes and dislikes unlike that i have had the awareness of watching my brain like rebuild it's been kind of cool that i have picked and chosen some personality traits that i want to move forward with and ones that i'm like no we're not going to do that again and my family has been pretty supportive albeit they found it very cringy at times seeing how in real time i'm molding myself to be palatable to people i definitely resist that you don't want to be too weird too out there too loud and that's something that i think is really difficult for neurodivergent people <laughs> like society is very judgmental very judgmental of anyone that has an extreme experience or extreme tastes and like the truth is it doesn't matter you're just a person too just like them and i think going through the extremeness of my accident my traumatic brain injury i just sort of i started to despise how rigid i viewed people in extreme circumstances because suddenly i was that person that story was reported by alan hinnage Carly's life-changing accident forced her to reevaluate who she was, and her story brings up a bigger question: How much of our sense of self comes from within, and how much is shaped by other people? Psychologist Brian Lowry invites people to consider those questions in his new book, Selfless: The Social Creation of You. It's useful to wonder, like, who am I really? and how much control do i have i mean that might take you to an interesting place coming up we'll talk about the book and brian's take on identity and the self that's next on the polls this message comes from npr sponsor train a high performing business takes a high performing building Reach organizational goals while enhancing systems and reducing emissions with Train Energy Services. Explore their consultative approach at train.com/energyservices. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country, but from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Loose, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Loose, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation. And who those accusations hurt the most. On it's been a minute from NPR. NPR's editorial independence and integrity is non-negotiable. It's the reason why so many listen to One A's Friday News Roundup. You'll get analysis and insight from the world's best correspondents. Listen to One A's Friday News Roundup only from NPR. Major funding for the Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. 
The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the self, who we are, how we define ourselves, and how much we're defined by others. We just heard Carly Ostrom's story. She had a traumatic brain injury, and afterwards she became aware of how much her life and her sense of self had been a product of her surroundings. Stanford University psychologist Brian Lowry argues that all of us can observe and explore the influence of the people around us more deeply and understand how even small or fleeting interactions can shape our sense of self and who we are. His new book is called Selfless, The Social Creation of You. The idea for the book came from just trying to understand how we end up where we end up and how we become who we become. How do we understand ourselves and how does the way other people view us influence our experiences? The identities others cast on us based on our appearance, gender, ethnicity or race. In the book, Brian writes about being a black professor at Stanford and being asked for his ID on campus or people not believing him that he's a professor. Those kinds of experiences have shaped his thinking and research. Early on, it was initiated by an interest in social outcomes. So I was really interested in social inequalities and how they come to be, how people experience them. And then for me, that is a a manifestation of something larger, just how does the social world work? How do we come to be who we are? So how do you think now about the self and what it is? I think about the self, the way we experience the self as a social construct, meaning that it's a function of our relationships. It's a function of the interactions we have. It's a function of the collective interactions we have that we think of as culture, what we produce collectively, that we make sense of ourselves in the context of relationships. If I think of myself as a son, if I think of myself as a professor, all of these things are social in nature, right? They cannot exist without other people. And you push that to the end and what you think is, I cannot exist without other people. And so once you, if, once you believe that, once you accept that, then that really changes how you think about the self and what the self is. So is there even a self? Is there, you know, a lot of us want to believe that we have a core or there is some part that is unalienable, that is steady, that is just a framework. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't believe in an ineffable soul, I would say that. I do think there's the physical self, right? I mean, and your physical self is also unique, but I don't think that's what people have in mind when they think about this self. And I do think that the self is, in the most extreme, what my view is the self is completely fluid, but I think everyone would accept to some extent that the self shifts and changes as we move through life. So I don't, I don't think of it, the self, as a a stable core that is you, that was you at birth or conception or whenever you think you first came into existence that is the same throughout your life. No, I don't, I don't think that exists. 
So then is the self more like a ball of putty and, you know, it just picks up whatever whatever it picks up, whatever sticks to it, it changes shape as it rolls through life? I think I think that's that's a I've not heard that description before, but sure, that's apt. But it, <laughs> but but it also, but it also, as it rolls, it changes other things too, right? So as it comes into contact with other beings, it it changes them too. So it's it's not as if it's some inanimate object being buffeted by you know the forces of nature, right? It it also affects what it touches, but. Are there certain things that affect that journey? You know, if I come into this world with certain core talents or certain core aspects of myself that then change my path, how does all that come into play? Sure. So imagine, for example, you are, you're born and I'll just, let's pick a a dimension, like you are exceptionally tall. Will that affect your life? Certainly it will. But it depends on the social context, how it affects your life, right? So there, there's been times and places where that would have been a, a, a disadvantage, a detriment. And there'll be times and places in, in the world and the social um, space where that would be a huge benefit. So it's not, I don't think that those things that are physical or we, that some people think of as core to who they are or particular talents are defining absent the social space in which they exist. So I, sometimes I give an example of if you imagine Genghis Khan today, he'd probably be in jail somewhere as opposed to someone who completely reshaped Eurasia. <laughs> like, I mean, are, are those with the talents, if you called them talents, would they be the same? I don't know if you should even call them talents, but whatever he was didn't dictate his outcomes absent the social context in which they occurred. Does your vision of self or the way you see the self, does it mean we're giving up a large portion of the control we think we have over who we are? Yeah, and I like how you phrase that, the control we think we have. So, <laughs> I mean, I think it's not, it's, it's pretty easy to demonstrate that we overestimate the amount of control we have over outcomes, I think. Mm-hmm. I think... It's important to examine how we exist in the world. And at the same time, when we get off this conversation, you're going to continue to behave like you're in complete control of your destiny. And I will do the same. (laughs) 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 I mean, it's I think it's the way we're designed, but it's it's useful to examine that and see where it takes you. It's useful to wonder, like, who am I really and how much control do I have? I mean, that might take you to an interesting place. It's not that you have to give up the idea that you have any agency. I'm not asking people to do that. And even if I did, it wouldn't work. But I am asking people to really stop and think about how they exist in the world and what that means and how they should interact with others and how how should they think about themselves. I want to go to a portion of your book where you ask the reader to do a little experiment. You invite readers to explore the distinction between the internal and the 
the external. And then you say, think about the little finger on your right hand and wiggle it a little bit, which, of course, immediately I did. <laughs> Because you said so, right? So I wiggled my finger. And then you go on and you say, we just shared a moment, a little dance across time and space. So you had the idea, you wrote it down, and then here I am reading your lines And I, I do it. So to you, what does that little experiment say about the self and how we're all connected? Well, first, I have a question for you. What did it feel like for you when, when I said like, hey, I just said this thing and you did it? Uh, what, what, was, what did it mean to you? What did it feel like for you? It felt like, huh, you know, that's, that's true. And then I thought about how I have a thousand little moments or a million moments like this in every given day where I do something in reaction to somebody else's input. But I don't think about, oh, I'm just reacting. And then I started thinking about myself as basically I'm a pinball. And at the beginning of my day, I just start rolling and then I get shot all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I set other things in motion. So it just set off a lot of thoughts in my head. Yeah, so I mean, for me, it just suggests the degree of connection. That example is really small, obviously. And you chose, and I would say this is in the, in the book, you can obviously say that you chose to move your finger. I didn't force you to do it, but you certainly wouldn't have done it had I not written it. And what does that say? What does that say about the relationship between in that case, me and you, right? Now, you know, at that point, we'd never met, we'd never spoken, but what I write is affecting you, right? Mm -hmm. And it's showing up in how you behave. There's something about that that is profound and also so mundane that we don't pay attention to it. So how could we pay more attention to those things? You know, I, I really see the book as an invitation to think about what we think of as ourself and our relationships with others. So how can we just examine this in our everyday lives? I mean, I think trying to let go of a, a, little, a little bit of the human narcissism, right? The sense that we are at the center of everything and the we in, in this singular way, like I am at the center of everything And, and you can start to see, it's not hard to see with a little bit of reflection how other people are both indispensable and inextricable part of how you experience the world in your life. And when you think of that, when you see that, I think it, it can change how you interact with other people because you see other people being really tightly tied to you and something necessary for you to engage in the world effectively and, and in a way that provides joy like then you can start to think about how you are a part of other people and the effect you're having on them. So I think it, it can raise your sense of responsibility in your interactions with other people. And maybe it can allow you to give yourself some grace when things are tough and not thinking of yourself as the singular source of all that is wrong in your life as well. That's social psychologist Brian Lowry. He's a professor of organizational behavior at Stanford University in California. His new book is called Selfless, The Social Creation of You. Coming up, we'll get into Brian's thinking around complicated issues like identity and how much of it is created by people around us. 
all social identities, by definition, require other people. That's why, that's why we think of them as social <laughs> identities. And so I'd put gender in that category, I'd put race in that category, nationality. All these things are identities that people take on as being who they are, that are at least in part dictated by other people. That's next on The Pulse. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news. We take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about our sense of self with social psychologist Brian Lowry. His new book is called Selfless, The Social Creation of You. Brian is a professor of organizational behavior at Stanford University and the co-director of the university's Institute on Race. In the book, Brian makes the argument that the self, our sense of identity, is really only possible in the context of other people people. How are we shaped by all the people in our lives or even where we grow up, like from the moment we're born? Because this process starts right away. Oh, it starts before you're born. Uh, that's <laughs> that. <laughs> I mean, you come into, that's one thing I'd say is like you come into a story already underway. The story doesn't start at your birth or conception. And often we don't even think about or examine the stories that predate us, that influence us, I think that's an interesting thing to examine too. Like, what's what's your parents' story? Like, what were your grandparents' story? How did you come to be? So think about, let's, we can just take some easy things like your ethnicity, right? There's all sorts of cultural expectations that will be applied prior to your conscious awareness of any of them on you, like your your gender, right? That your physical sex will likely affect how people see your gender and that will dictate a lot about how your life evolves. 
So, I mean, just if you just think of those two things, those are, they seem to be physical characteristics, but really they are made meaningful in the context of relationships. And none of that denies that the physical is meaningful. It just situates it in the, in the social context. And talk about that in the context of social identities. You know, you, you write in the book about the way we perceive ourselves. You've, you've spoken about gender or racial identities, but then there is the identity that society puts on us. Mm -hmm. Well, I think all social identities by definition require other people. That's why, that's why we think of them as social <laughs> identities. Um, and so I'd put gender in that category, I'd put race in that category, nationality, all these things are identities that people take on as being who they are or part, at least a part of who they are that are at least in part dictated by other people. So the way I think about social identities is that they are community creations, right? They exist because communities bring them into existence and then communities can confer them or withhold them. So by that, I mean to be, when I talk about this quite a bit in the book, to be black is to be accepted as black by the black community and to see yourself as such. That's what it means. That's what defines being black from my perspective anyway. And to be a woman or be, to be a man is to think of yourself as such and to be accepted as such within a community. And where you see what highlights what it means for it to be a social construction is that you can go to different communities and be different things. So you can, in my mind, you can be a woman in one community and later that day, go to a different community and not be accepted as a woman and therefore not be a woman. That you can literally be a woman at one time during the day and not at another time during the day. Because those identities don't inhere in the person. They're not inside you. They are in the, in the social relationships you engage in. And so they can shift. And, they, and I think they do shift quite a bit, honestly. And you give in the book... The example or one example, which was a really, you know, controversial story that got people really riled up, which is about Rachel Dolezal. So talk about her identity and how the perception of her shifted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that, that one is that one. I, I don't know. We'll see. That one, I guess, could get me in trouble. <laughs> people were really worked up about that. So, you know. She was a woman who was born to white parents and by all accounts as a child was considered white by, I assume, herself and others. But she says that she very early on thought of herself as a black person. And that was how she wanted to be identified, how she thought of herself. And over time, that started to show up in how she physically looked, how she represented herself, the kind of relationship she engaged in, and at some point, she was seen as a black woman within the community she existed in, meaning they thought she was a black woman because she presented herself as such. I don't mean that they thought she was a white woman and they said, oh, you're, you just, you're just like us, you're a black woman. I mean that they thought of her as a black woman with no caveats. She deceived people by darkening her skin tone, braiding her hair, and lying about her background. She even served as the president of an NAACP chapter. And it came out that her she was born to white parents, and the community, or many communities, black communities, said she was no longer black. They didn't see her as black anymore. 
although she still thought of herself as black. And the controversy was all over who could be black. You know, people were very upset. And what what I say (laughs) is that she was born a white, a white person, became a black woman, and then became a not black woman. (laughs) And the reason I say that is she was, I mean, the white part is probably not controversial, but she, at some point, she saw herself as black and the community she existed in accepted her as black. And at that point, my, my argument is that she was black. And then when the community decided she was not black, and it doesn't matter why they decided she wasn't black, when they decided she was not black, she was no longer black. And so that is what I mean. That is a, a very clear case of a shift in identity as a function of changing the changing nature of relationships. So we can only be the identity or the self that we we want to be when we are accepted as such by others? Yep. A social identity is, this is the thing that <laughs> a social identity is by definition social. Right. <laughs> Meaning that other people have to participate in it with you. Okay. So, <laughs> whew, yeah, but it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Is there a difference between identity and social identity? So is there such a thing that is just my identity versus social identity, or are they the same in your mind? So you could have physical identity, and I I think that's different. You exist as a a physical thing, and that physical thing has properties that are measurable, and I think that that is unlikely to change, but I don't think that's what most people think of as their self. Like, we are, in part, or maybe mostly biomechanical machines. Um, So the machinery is, is yours, and to some extent, I guess you could think of it as you, but I doubt you do. My guess is you feel like you're inside it, not of it exactly. My my strong sense is that when people think of who they are, a large part of that is social. I want to try to look at this example of, of the social identity through maybe another example. So you we were talking about a really controversial case. Mm-hmm. But, you know, let's say I'm a daughter. I am a daughter, obviously. And... Let's say my family excommunicates me, mm-hmm. but I'm still a daughter, right? Or am I not? Nope. Because nobody is... Oh. No, you're not a daughter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brian, we're done. So again, this is where there's confusion. Like, you're not a daughter. Because this is what I mean. Like, okay, here's... Let's, let's do... I'm going to give a different one because I think mother is easier, but it's the same point. Okay. Yes, I'm a mother too, so... Your mother, like your mother because your children accept you as such and you engage with them as such. Yep. Or other people accept you as such. You're not a mother as a function of just having birthed children. Would you agree with that? Some people would say it's the act of giving birth. And I always think it's the act of taking care or caring for. If you think you're caring but no one else thinks you are, no one else but you believes you're caring, are you a mother? I mean, if I think I am, or... <laughs> <laughs> but no one else does. No one else does. Is that? Are you a mother? Yeah, I guess. 
I don't know. I want to believe I still would be, but yes, I see I see where you're going. But mm-hmm. I think it takes us back to this issue of control that we that we hinted at before, you know, where I like to delude myself into thinking that I'm in control of who I am. Mm-hmm. And I don't need other people to, you know, I don't need other people to validate what or who I am. <laughs> Uh huh. It's a good story, right? Yeah, it's a good story. Uh-huh. <laughs> Ooh, okay, I, I think I, I'm very clear that that is delusional. Like the, the idea that we don't need other people to be who we are is just almost certainly false. You write a lot in the book about how this kind of thinking also invites us to think differently about our opinions of others, our thoughts on equality, inequality, what is fair, what isn't. So talk a bit about that. Yeah, so one of the things that, at least in our society, like in by our, I mean Western society, or any, I mean many societies now that are meritocratic, at the center of that is a, is an idea of deservingness, that you deserve somehow as a, as a function of something that's inherent in you, your talent, your abilities, your hard work and effort deserve to have good things or, or, or not. And if you think of the self in this way, it, it, it challenges that a bit, that your outcomes are such a, a product of so many things that are going on that are not under your control, that you don't you don't dictate that it's hard to say like therefore if you have this out you've done this thing all these good things should happen to you do you see big differences in in people and how they view the self depending on where they grew up you know i'm thinking about cultures or countries where the national identity might be much stronger or where maybe there's a very cohesive version of what it means to be this or what it means to be that, you know. So how does that sense of like where we grow up and how strong that national identity is affect our sense of self? One way to think about that is different cultures have different kind of um, ideas about self. And this is also interesting because it suggests that the self is not just given. It's not just like we all as human beings understand and know the self in the same way. So there's a lot of research on collectivist versus like individualistic societies that makes the claim that some societies, often it's like Eastern societies, are more, more likely to see the self as a product of relationships. They, they think in terms of I am who I am in part because of, or in large part because of the relationships that surround me. And so that is much closer to the way I think about it, the way I'm talking about it in the book, than the more individualistic way that people talk about it. And again, to answer your question, yeah, there's certainly differences uh, as a function of culture in terms of the way that people understand the self. The book got me thinking a lot about how the groups that we used to live in as humans were a lot smaller and I guess, just tighter. So the way our identity or our sense of self was shaped through all that influence was probably a more limited amount of people, whereas now I feel like I'm getting input from 
all over the place, you know, from from people on social media who I barely know. And from just, you know, it feels like I'm literally getting this global input on on who I am. It's a lot. No, I think that's that it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, I think, you know, humans are, there's good reason to believe we're inherently tribal. Like we need groups and we belong to groups. And, and today it's, it's hard sometimes to think about the amount of influences that we're exposed to, to your point. It's really vast, you know, and maybe sometimes overwhelming even. But still, I think that the, we still need to define who's in our group and who's out of the group, though. Right. So when we think about our communities and our identities, well, in part what we're doing is saying, who do, how do we pay attention to or certain people or who do we pay attention to? Um, so I think there's still a, an attempt to limit who's considered part of our group, our circle, in a way that helps us make sense of ourselves in the, in, in the world. Right. Like the groups you're a part of tells you how to respond in the world to other people and to just the things that come up to you and like come to you in life. So I think it's 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 much maybe it's even more important now given the complexity of of the world that we live in. Yeah, it almost feels like those social identities have really gotten more rigid in a way in how we identify and how we align ourselves with others. Yeah, I think sometimes it's it's the case that in the face of more chaos, maybe we cling more tightly to the identities that help us make sense of the world. And maybe that makes us less open to um, other ways of thinking, other ways of being. What would you like us to think more of in terms of who we are at core, what this self is? Like, how can we just open our eyes a little bit to, to this way of thinking? I'm really, I try not to be prescriptive, honestly. So my goal really is to, and you said this earlier, it's an invitation to consider what you are and to consider that you may be something other than what you think you are. And I don't have a, a prescription of what you should do with that. I think that the world becomes more interesting and bigger when you can see how you're being influenced by the people around you. I think that you can see your responsibility in the world more clearly when you can see that you're influencing actually who people are and how they show up in the world. I think it also suggests a deeper connection to others than we uh, maybe commonly assume, that there, there's an intimacy and even fleeting interactions that sometimes we don't acknowledge. And I guess the question I ask is, what would it look like if you were to acknowledge that? If you were to experience the, the intimacy that comes with the effect that we all have on each other in interactions. Yeah, and I think really thinking about the small interactions we have with people and how they shape us, the interactions we so often overlook, that also lends a certain beauty to the mundane. You know, like how we say hi to the person we see at the gym and then maybe to think about, oh, you know, every time I see that guy, I want to try that stretch or whatever, you know. <laughs> it's just <Yeah>. like <laughs> there are lots of ways in which complete strangers change our day, really, and change ourselves. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, the other thing that I love about this one, I, I mean, the thing that makes me happy about it is you recognize that every person is a whole world for you to explore. 
Like you don't have to, but every person has is experiencing the world in their own unique way and has all these interactions and relationships that shape them just the same way you do. And so every time you bump into someone, it's a whole world that's available to you. So I can be the I can be the pinball or the putty. <laughs> <laughs> Again, again, I would say it's not like, but I wouldn't, I don't know if I like the pinball one so much because it's as if everything is just acting on you and you're just, you know, some kind of inanimate object. But, you know, the putty one is all right. Like, you you know, you roll along and you're, you're different shapes and you're interacting with other people and sometimes you fit in this space and sometimes you don't and, you know, and you change as you go. That's not so bad. Brian Lowry is a social psychologist and a professor of organizational behavior at Stanford University in California. His new book is called Selfless, The Social Creation of You. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer, and we had additional engineering this week from Julian Hertzfeld, Al Banks, and Mike Villers. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. The Bullseye Podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at The Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to The Indicator podcast from NPR. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR.